You know, on Sunday mornings as I stand by the door, as many of you exit, I get a chance to speak to some of you, and it's interesting the things that I hear. Some of them are very encouraging, and I I always appreciate that. Sometimes it's a little confusing, and I try to act like I understand. (laughs) There are times that the things that you share with me are heartbreaking and sometimes even disturbing. But last week, I, I had a comment of someone who was going out the door that I found especially satisfying, and that comment was this. They said, when you said that you were going to start a sermon series on the minor prophets, I thought it was going to be boring, but it hasn't been. And I got to tell you, if you'll take the time to read those minor prophets and you read asking God to enlighten you, to open up your heart, to, to see what he has to say, not just to ancient peoples, but to you, then I think you'll find that these minor prophets are anything, anything but boring. Two weeks ago, we met a man named Hosea. God's unusual call for him to go and to marry a woman who was going to be unfaithful, promiscuous. Last week, we met a guy named Joel who was told by God to go and to preach repentance, a message of of turning their hearts back to the Lord. Today, we're going to meet a guy named Amos. And so if you want to go ahead and open in your Bibles and find Amos, I'm going to share a few things with you about him uh, while you locate that. Amos name means to carry or to bear a burden. And what we're going to discover is that God was was telling Amos to do just that. There was this message, this burden that he was to carry, he was to bear, and he was to preach this message. And it wasn't going to be an easy message to be heard. Now, when we think about the timing, you know, last week we said we really didn't know where to peg Joel. Amos, we've got a little better idea. As a matter of fact, we find it in verse 1 of chapter 1, which says this, The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was the king of Israel. And what we see here is that there is a time frame, a a period of time where they overlap, and we can get a pretty good idea of uh, approximately when this guy Amos was out there preaching, prophesying. And it would be between 768 and 753 B.C. Now, if any of you were around then and you want to correct me, that's fine. That's a, not too big of a gap. You know, if we knew when this earthquake was, then we could probably peg it better. And there have been some attempts to find out when an earthquake occurred then, but that's kind of hard to do, to figure out when an earthquake was, you know, thousands of years ago. It's almost as hard as when we originally moved back to North Carolina after Nancy and I had gone to seminary and got back. Uh, I knew the roads pretty well because we were only seven miles from my hometown. So I was trying to tell Nancy how to get from point A to point B. And so I, I told her, well, you go up this highway here and you turn left immediately after where the railroad tracks used to be. <laughs> got one of those doe in the headlights looks back. Well, if we knew when the earthquake was, I mean, that's kind of what we're said here, you know, two, two years before the earthquake. We really don't know when that earthquake is, but we've got some idea, possibly what was going on during that time, which is always helpful to know. Now, Amos, unlike some of the other prophets, we actually get to figure out a little bit about who he was before he became a prophet. You know, the other guys, we'd figure out their dad's name, and that'd be about all we'd get. Well, with Amos, his occupation really comes right out of the text. It says in in, uh, chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, he says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and also took care of sycamore fig trees. 
But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go and prophesy to my people Israel. So what Amos says about himself is that he was not a professional prophet. In other words, he was a working man. That's what he was before he was called. He was a shepherd, and he tended sycamore fig trees. He was a working man, a a common guy, just like many of us are. He did not have the official pedigree. He didn't come from a line of prophets. You know, I can't stand up before you and say, well, my dad was a, a preacher before me, and his dad was a preacher, and his dad before him was a preacher. Well, Amos couldn't stand up and say, you know, my dad was a prophet and his dad was a prophet. So I've got a pedigree. I've got a a lineage. I've got something to back me up. But he did have what really mattered, and that was a call from God. You'll also remember Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and, and, and Joel was a prophet to the southern kingdom. Amos is a little different. Amos was from Tekoa, near Bethlehem, about 10 miles from Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. He was from the southern kingdom, but God called Amos to go and to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel. So not only did Amos not have the pedigree to back him up, he was also being asked to step out of his comfort zone, to go to a place that was a little bit different and where the people wouldn't receive him quite as well. So after Amos receives his call, he goes to the city of Bethel, and there he begins to preach. Now, Bethel is actually just over the border into the northern kingdom, so he didn't have to go far. stopped at the first major city along the way, probably exactly where God sent him to be. But the Bible doesn't tell us how he got started in his, his ministry. It's easy to imagine that as he went to Bethel, he would look for a place where there was a crowd so that he could give them this message that God gave to him. And the place that he would have found a crowd would have been at the temple. There was a temple in Bethel. And he could have gone there and he could have found a crowd and, and begun to preach. And i got to tell you, when we, when we see what he preached, you're going to find out that he may well have been received enthusiastically. This guy would have been a champion as he started his message. Because Amos begins by speaking judgment against the surrounding nations. This is how he begins. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, says the Lord. Damascus. It was the capital of Syria. We've got a map right here, and we're going to have some places that pop up for you. You can see Damascus, the capital of Syria, way up in the upper portion of the map. Gaza, which was a city in Philistia. You can see that over here on this side. Hey, there's a, yeah, it's almost like magic. You see where Gaza is. Tyre, which is, if you go north, right there on the seacoast in Lebanon. Then Edom is a nation way down here. It it looks like he would have put them in order for me, doesn't it? And then Ammon, go up there, and then Moab. So he's preaching against all these nations with the same kind of message. For three sins and for four, I will not relent. And the crowd's initial reaction would have been overwhelmingly positive. Because here came a prophet telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. All these pagan nations around them, every last one of them, deserved God's judgment. And God was finally going to put the hammer down. 
And you can imagine as he goes through his prophecies, and I want to encourage you to read chapters 1 and 2, and you see as he makes this progression, you can almost see the, the, the faces of the people in the crowd. You can almost hear the shouts of amen as he's condemning these nations all around Israel who'd always been a headache, who'd always been pagan, who'd always been a problem, and he begins to condemn them one after another after another. And after Moab's judgment, After the judgment against Moab, Amos did something that was absolutely unexpected and would have brought the crowd to its proverbial feet. He condemned his home nation of Judah. He condemned his home nation of Judah because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, This is what the Lord says. For the three sins of Judah... And even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Why would this have brought the crowd to its feet? Why would this have been such a big deal? Anyone here who had a brother or a sister and you felt your parents favored them over you? Anyone willing to admit to that? Okay, a few of you. Israel was kind of like that. Judah was always the favored child, daddy's child. And they felt like that proverbial red-headed stepchild. They really didn't feel, if you're red-headed and a stepchild, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. But this is how they felt. They felt that they were always getting, playing second fiddle to Judah. Judah was always daddy's favorite, and here they were, some second-class child. Now, you may recall, as, as I've mentioned before, that Israel was once united as one kingdom. King Saul, King David, King Solomon all ruled one kingdom. But it was under the rule of Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, whom you know I've called a knothead before, he was. He made foolish decisions. And what that did was that split the kingdom in two, and then Rehoboam became the king over the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jeroboam became the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. That little history lesson is important because of this. Even though the kingdom was divided, and God actually gave that portion to Jeroboam. Jeroboam didn't, didn't take advantage of the blessings of God, or, or maybe I should say he did take advantage in a bad kind of way because he got together with his counselors and he said, you know what? Um, there's a temple down in Jerusalem and that's where the people are going to continue to go and worship, but if they continue to go down there and worship, they may start having their hearts leaning back towards King Rehoboam into the kingdom of Judah and their allegiance may be down there. And so why don't we set up our own temples right here in the northern kingdom so the people don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem? How convenient. The only problem was God said there's only supposed to be one temple and they were building two, one in Bethel, one in Gilgal. Now, let's, let's top it off, put the cherry on top of this, just to show you how bad a decision this was. Jeroboam decided that not only are we going to disobey God by building two temples in the northern kingdom, 
But in those temples, we're going to place two statues. And I'll just let you guess what they were statues of. Anybody? Do what? Golden calves. Heard that one before? Wow. He took these blessings of God. He took this gift that God gave him, and he immediately started messing it up. I don't know if anybody can identify with that or not. He built two temples in the northern kingdom and then put calf idols in there because remember what we talked about. The people had a hard time even figuring out where the separation line was between Baal and Yahweh. And so they actually worshipped the golden calves thinking they were worshipping the Lord. Okay, with all this going on and with Amos coming down and condemning Judah, Israel must have thought this must be our time. God is finally frustrated with them and he's going to, he's going to bless us now. He's going to turn his favor from those wicked people down there in Judah. He's going to turn his favor to us. Wasn't it always nice when your, your brother or your sister got punished and you got patted on the head? One got patted on the backside, the other got patted. Wasn't that always just the best time that you got to be the number one child? That you, you can almost sense the anticipation, the eagerness, the joy that's filling their hearts because they're thinking, okay, this is our time. We almost know what Amos is going to say next. Amos is going to look at us with a big smile on his face, and he's going to say, but you, O Israel, you are favored by God. God is going to bless you because you're such good people. God is going to open the the, the floodgates of heaven and pour his blessings out on you. And there will be a day of judgment that's coming, the day of the Lord's coming, where he's going to knock down all those other nations, grind them in the dust. But you, you, O Israel, will stand. That is not what Amos said. Amos said, For three sins of Israel and for four, I will not relent. All the air goes out of the room. All the joy taken away in a moment. They thought they were being set up as the favored child. But Amos was just setting them up for a big fall. You see, the judgment was coming on them too. There's no way to go through. There are nine chapters in Amos. And let me encourage you, if you've been doing this, I'm sure it's been a blessing to you to read the the minor prophet that we we talk about on Sundays, to go ahead and read it. Only nine chapters in Amos, uh, just a little over one a day, and you can be done with it in a short period of time, two chapters a day, and you'll be done with it by Thursday. But when you read it, what you're going to discover is all the charges that God brought against Israel. So we're not going to be able to look at all of them, but if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to look in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, at just a select few verses that will help us to understand a little bit about the problem that God was having with Israel. This is what Amos says, or God says through Amos. They, that is Israel, sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. 
They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. They drink wine taken as fines. There are a number of things we see here. Let me summarize these very quickly for you. First, we see a disregard of the poor by the rich. It was a time of great prosperity in Israel, a time of peace, and the rich kept getting richer. But unfortunately, the poor kept getting poorer. In the eyes of the rich, the poor had no value. And therefore, we see that the the innocent are sold for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor. Sadly, many of the words that Amos used against Israel could be used of nations in our own world today. And sadly, sometimes, even in our own nation. Secondly, we see the oppression of the weak by the powerful. Those who could buy justice bought it. And those who couldn't afford it were denied it. Might made right. If you were strong enough, you could get away with just about anything. If you were rich enough, you could get away with just about anything anything and again we see that in cultures around the world even today and sadly we see it even in our own culture third there is a disregard for both sexual and religious purity did you notice father and son slept with the same girl now the 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 concept here is of the temple prostitute And again, God never said, I want you to put prostitutes in the temple. This is where the religions gets mixed and the worship of Baal, the fertility cult, sexual rites were part of that kind of worship and it all got mixed up and confused so that people were actually committing sexual acts with prostitutes thinking that they were doing something for God. I'm not sure who came up with that idea. But father and son use the same girl, and it's done in the name of the Lord. I think one of the things that breaks the heart of God most is when people are unrighteous and unjust, and they slap his name on it. Fourth, they disrespected both their fellow Israelites and God. He mentions garments taken in pledge. Let me tell you what that is. If a person were poor and really all they had was literally the clothes on their back, if they had to borrow money to eat for that day, then what they would do is they would give their cloak as a pledge that I will repay this. But God said, if a person's in that kind of bad situation and they can't eat, then You can take their cloak and pledge, but at night, you need to go find them and give it back because that's the only thing they have to keep them warm. But what is Israel doing? Israel is taking the cloak that was given in pledge by this poor person who just had the clothes on their back and going and using that as bedding to have sex with temple prostitutes. 
not only are they breaking God's commands and laws by being involved with a sexual prostitute, they're taking this guy's only clothing and using it for bedding. Now, the real kicker is this. They should have known better. Unlike the pagan nations around them, God had revealed himself and his will to Israel. And the Lord tells them here, and you'll read it, I delivered you from Egypt. I sustained you in the wilderness. I brought you into this promised land and secured it for you. I gave you Nazarites. Nazarites were people who took a vow of holiness. They wouldn't drink wine. They wouldn't cut their hair. I gave you Nazarites as an example of holiness and and prophets to speak God's truth. But this is what we read. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not the prophecy. Here I sent you these people and you abused them. You forced someone who took a vow of holiness to drink. And when I sent my prophets, you wouldn't listen. They not only indulged in sin themselves, but they could not stand to see someone else take a moral stand or to hear the truth that God proclaimed. It is said by many that the only thing in the United States that is not tolerated is the intolerance of Christians. That we take a moral stand. That we do set ourselves apart. Now, we don't do it perfectly. Come on now, we don't. We have our own fair share of stuff that we need to deal with. But when we do take a moral stand, people try to pull us back down in the mud with them. They can't stand to see someone who is set apart who's devoted to God in any way, they want to drag them down with them. And as far as hearing what God has to say, folks, we live in a culture where people don't want to hear it. That's good for you, but not for me. I don't want to hear it. Don't tell me anything. Don't preach to me. Therefore, God announces his judgment on the nation of Israel. He says, now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. I will crush you. That's serious. You can almost imagine that Amos' words were spoken near a broken cart that had collapsed because of the grain that had been loaded in it. You know, very often God used those immediate things around them. Consider the lilies of the field. Look, a sower goes out to sow. God would use those immediate things around to teach an immediate, impactful lesson. I don't think that Amos was exaggerating. I'll go out and play golf with Jay sometimes, and I must admit he beats me more now than he, than he used to. I used to have the psychological advantage over him. All I could do, I could be three or four strokes behind and get to the second to the last hole and turn to him and say, okay, it's time for me to put the hammer down. He'd just wither. 
and I'd take the victory lap. No, I didn't taunt in front. I didn't taunt my son. I did take the money we bet. No, we didn't bet. Sorry. Now, I can put the hammer down all I want. It doesn't mean a thing. He puts the hammer down on me. But, you know, even when I threatened to put the hammer down on him, it, I wasn't literally going to beat him with a hammer. But when God said, I'm going to crush you, God meant it. And we look at that and we go, wow, that's pretty serious stuff. But remember, when people won't listen, God increasingly intensifies his efforts until someone has to listen. One of the prayers that I pray for people is a dangerous prayer. There are people who I see whose lives are going astray and they don't seem to care what God has to say about it, what God has to think about it. And so very often I will pray, God, do whatever it takes to reach that person. Now that's a dangerous prayer because I've just opened up all kinds of possibilities. I can't tell you how many people that I have had the opportunity to meet behind the walls of the Green County Jail who have told me the best thing that ever happened to me was getting arrested. Now, I can tell you, getting arrested is not on the top of my list of things to do. But they said the best thing that could happen was for me to get arrested. Sometimes the best thing that can happen is for God to bring his discipline into our lives. And Amos says this is exactly what's going to happen. The people knew God, they knew his truths, but they rejected both of them. Now, they had the trappings of religion. They had this religion thing down cold, but they had no heart for real worship of the Lord. They claimed to love God, but that love didn't spill over into the lives of the hurting and the helpless and the needy. And so God says, my judgment is at hand. Now, now God had warned them ahead of time. And in fact, when you read Amos, you're going to see the ways that God tried to get their attention, the red flags that he waved in front of them saying, you're going the wrong way. He used famine. He used drought. He used blight, plague, and even battles. And finally, God says, okay, if you won't listen with a stick, maybe you'll listen with a carrot. And Israel at that point was facing the greatest time of prosperity that they had ever known. And yet, whether it was with a stick or with a carrot, the people wouldn't listen. And so Amos' message is real simple. He says, okay, if you want to go that way, go all the way. Don't just toy around the edges. Go on with it. In uh, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. Listen, don't just fool around with it. Go all the way. Just go on. Maybe the sooner you get there, the sooner you realize how empty that pursuit is. It's one of the things that we read about in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you haven't read it lately, it, it, and it's not, you know, when you start reading it, it's not the most encouraging book. It starts out by saying, 
Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything's empty. Everything's meaningless under the sun. And you go, well, this is no fun. But then as you read along, you discover that Solomon, who had everything in the world, who had the wisdom, who had the money, who had the power, he pursued all these things in life. And when he got to the end of those pursuits, he said, you know what? This is empty. I went after women, but when I got to the end of the road, it was empty. I went after money, but when I got to the end of that road, it was empty. I went after power. I built beautiful gardens. I built magnificent buildings. But in the end, it was all empty. God says, listen, if you have to go all the way, get there in a hurry. So like the prodigal son, you can turn your heart back to me. Now, I will admit that even even in the midst of all this proclamation of judgment, Amos holds out this hope. Amos extends his hope to the people. This is something you're going to see in all the minor prophets. In chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, he says, Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba, which is way in the southern part of, of Judah. Don't go down there. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. The people took their peace and prosperity as a sign that God was happy with them. Amos was there to say the truth is just the opposite. The Lord is grieved over your lives and your lifestyle. The good times were part of God's effort to get them to recognize who he was and to turn back before it was too late. And yet they ignored it. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer, and they went from bad to worse. Even Israel's king wasn't willing to listen. In fact, Amos' message gets all the way to the king, and the king basically says, you need to shut up and go home. We don't want to hear this stuff. We're fat and happy as we are. Amos' message was directed at the rich, the influential, and the powerful. It was unwelcomed and uncomfortable. But Amos, who was given this burden to bear by God, was intent on bearing it. Now, before we look at kind of wrapping this up, I want to tell you something. And I want to be as serious as I can. I love living in the United States of America. There is not a better country on the face of this earth. But if you and I think that God will not judge us, then we're just lying to ourselves. I am not condemning America. I'm not jumping up on a platform saying that we're wicked and, you know, I'm not going out there with that bunch from Westboro Baptist Church protesting funerals and saying this is God's... I'm I'm not doing all that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to keep our eyes open. Be aware of what's going on in our times. And when we sing God bless America, we may need to add at the end and God have mercy on us. Let me share with you because these ancient words actually speak truth to our time. And I'd like to, to, to tie this all together very quickly. There are a number of truths that we can draw from these passages today. And the first truth is this. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Remember, Amos was, didn't come from a long line of prophets. Amos was an ordinary working guy. 
maybe middle management. He was, he was an ordinary working guy. And God took him and used him in a powerful way because there is no substitute for the favor and call of God in your life. Now, you may look at your life and say, you know, I'm just an ordinary person. I can't preach. I can't sing. I can't do this. I can't do that. But i got to tell you something. If God has called you, you can do anything God calls you to do, no matter how hard it is. And i got to tell you, every one of you sitting out here who are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has a call on your life. You need to find out what it is. And you need to pursue it with all your heart, not thinking about simply being ordinary. Secondly, we must not condemn the sin in others while ignoring, ignoring it in our own lives. That doesn't mean we ignore the sin in others. But if we're constantly focusing on what's wrong with, with them rather than looking at our own lives, then, then we've got a problem. We become like the Pharisees. We become hypocrites. A third truth is this. We cannot assume that personal or national prosperity is a sign of God's pleasure with us. Remember, prosperity was one of the means that God used to call his people back to him. Fourth, the Lord cares deeply how we treat others. The Lord really does care how we treat other people. We cannot afford to go through our lives with blinders on to the needs all around us. It matters to God. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all you've got. But he said the second one that's attached to it is, love your neighbor as yourself. What if we treat other people the way we want to be treated? If we love God, that love will express itself in our genuine love for others. And finally, our need is not to become more religious, but to become more godly. That's what God really wants. It's not saying that we don't, we don't need to be a part of a church. We don't need to come and worship. We don't need to give. We don't need to do all these religious things. But what God is more interested in is your heart. Because you can do all those other things and your heart be a long way off. God says, these people, they honor me with my lips. But their hearts are far from me. I don't want that to be us. I want us to be a people who honors God both with our lips and our hearts, who honor God with our lives. These ancient words spoken a long time ago are echoing to us through those centuries. They're speaking to us. They're speaking to you. It's time for us to respond.